Well, good morning, everyone. And if you would turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 34, we're going to kind of go a little bit backwards. Last week, we covered really the end of 34 and 35. We got into chapter 36, but there were some questions and comments made that I think might be helpful to just kind of go back a little bit and put things into perspective. So I'm going to kind of put it into terms that I think most of us are familiar with, but not necessarily everyone. So if you just kind of hold your place in Isaiah 34, in the Bible we find a number of events that we know are in the future, things to come, things that are going to happen in the future. And the very next one that I think most of us are anticipating is the rapture. The rapture is where the Holy Spirit and the church are removed. It's described in Thessalonians as we being caught up to meet Christ in the air. And I personally believe that it has to happen before the tribulation time can happen. And the reason is, is the Holy Spirit, I believe, is restraining the Antichrist. And when the Holy Spirit is removed, the Antichrist is going to have a freedom to work. Now, you and I today, we're seeing some of the stage being set for this time um, in talking about future things with various friends. Uh, one person mentioned that Satan has always had to have his man ready to step in because he doesn't know the time. And so many believe, or some at least believe, that Hitler was probably um, picked for that type of role but America was a very different place at that time than it is now. The world was a very different place. And so the rapture is the next big event, and it's going to happen. And the world that's left behind is going to rationalize why these people are gone. don't know how they're going to rationalize it away, but they're going to basically say, oh, well, it was this or this other. And so the rapture happens. And then we have the seven-year tribulation time and this begins with a peace treaty between the antichrist and israel and so it's talked about in the bible as a covenant and it's a seven-year time period it's in the book of daniel it's also in the book of revelation and that seven-year time period is where israel is being prepared to accept her messiah and so it's called in the Bible, the time of Jacob's trouble. The church is not there. It's been taken out of this world. And so everything that God is doing is now turning back to happening through, in and through, Israel, the Jewish people. Right now, the age that you and I live in, the dispensation, is what most call the church age. And... God has taken the Jewish people, the, the nation of Israel, and basically put them on a shelf and said, time out. Uh, he's not forsaken them, although some horrific things have happened to them. And it will be during this seven-year time period that they are basically 
changed to be ready to accept their Messiah. And that then gets us to Jesus' second coming, Messiah's second coming. And that's really what Isaiah gave us in chapter 34 and 35 was the executive summary of Jesus' second coming. David. Yeah, go ahead. The Jews today are very interesting and I think very diverse in some of their views. I think the most common one, and, and I say this because I obviously don't go out and survey the Jews, but I think the most common one is the Jews feel that God must surely hate them because of all the horrific things that have happened to them in the past. There are some Jews that you see kind of signs of spiritual life starting to happen, and I think they are looking for their Messiah. David's question is a really good one because in the book of Revelation, it highlights that during this seven-year tribulation time, there's going to be 144,000 Jews that are sealed and put aside. And my own personal understanding is that during that seven-year tribulation, that 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, are going to bring about all the revival and spiritual changes that happened during the tribulation time. And not them alone, but especially them, though. Um, but that's my best understanding of it. You know. Norm? The Jewish reader, he's a believer. Okay, he may be. I don't know him well enough to be able to say that, you know. So, so there are Jews today that know their Messiah. Um, there's a group called Jews for Jesus that has existed since at least the 70s. And so there are some Jews that accept Messiah, but the vast majority as a whole, they don't. And so chapter 34 and 35 really were tying into Jesus' second coming. So if you have your uh, Bible open to Isaiah 34, I want you to notice verse 2. It says, For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and his fury is upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. And so when Jesus comes back the second time, the first thing that's going to happen is the armies of this world have been brought together in the Valley of Armageddon, and they're basically looking to annihilate the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And Jesus comes back, and he basically destroys all the armies of the world. You can find this also as far as a detailed description of this in Revelation 19. It's at the end of the tribulation time, which is described throughout uh, most of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, verses 12 through 16, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness 
He doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his head were on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon the white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, he should rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so when Jesus comes back, this passage, this one verse in Isaiah, I believe, correlates and ties to this set of verses in Revelation. It's Isaiah's way of saying, in the final days where God's going to save Israel, here's what's going to happen. The armies of this world are going to be destroyed. And Revelation gives us then the details of how that's going to be. Jesus will come back. They'll see him riding on a white horse. And all he will do is speak the word. When it talks about the sharp sword coming out of his mouth, he'll simply speak the word and those armies will be destroyed. <laughs> Wayne? We need to remember too that America is going to be part of those armies too. We actually don't have any indication in the Bible as to America's role. But if America is around in some form or fashion like we see today, Wayne's 100% correct. America will be joining the armies of this world or not be there at all, one of the two. And so those are the two options, but they'll be against Israel. My personal belief is at some point when our nation ceases to align and ceases to try to protect Israel, that that will basically be a time where now we'll be open to God's judgment. I think he's really refrained from judgment of our nation, mainly to let it serve a purpose of protecting Israel. That is not chapter and verse. That is Tom Burkett's opinion. Just want you to, to know that because future events... I tried to take what the scripture says and it's like puzzle pieces to me, but there are also things where I try and connect dots that may not connect. And that's why I mentioned on Wayne's thing, it could be one of two options. Um, so Isaiah 34 points to this time when the armies are gonna be destroyed. And then if you go to Isaiah 35, Verses 8 through 10. And this is what we covered last week also. Basically it said, An highway shall be there, a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lion shall be there, nor any other ravenous beast shall go upon there. It shall be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, 
And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And so that was kind of the ending of this second coming. When Christ comes again, one of the things that will happen is Israel will be gathered from all the countries. And so while I didn't see a verse in in the New Testament, Ezekiel gives us some of the details that Isaiah doesn't. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 13. Ezekiel is receiving revelation from God. He says, Then I fell upon my face, and I cried with a loud voice, and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And so he's focused on the fact that God has always maintained a remnant. There have always been Jews that have been faithful and true to God. And God has preserved them. And there was a dispersing into captivity and then a regathering the first time. This one is the second time. And then I go down to verse 16 in that same passage in Ezekiel 11. He says, therefore, say, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Therefore, say, thus saith the Lord God, I will gather you from people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel, and they shall come thither, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from thence, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my ordinances, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is a description of God regathering Israel. He talks about bringing them from all the countries where he scattered them. Isaiah has talked in just a couple verses about this highway that will be called the highway of holiness. My personal understanding of Isaiah as well as this passage is that when Christ comes to rule and reign as Messiah and King he's going to regather the Jews and notice he says he's going to give them a new heart he's going to take the stony heart the heart of disbelief the heart that has been rejecting Messiah he's going to give them a new one and Lee and I were talking about this I think the tribulation prepares them for that, but when Christ comes, they will see the scars in his hand. Zacharias, Zechariah tells us this. And when they do, they're going to have a different heart. They're going to instantaneously accept their Messiah. But they won't all be in Israel. They won't all be in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. They're going to be scattered as they are today 
and they're going to need to make the trip back to the land of Israel. That's where they'll regather, and Ezekiel describes that. Isaiah gives hints of it, and he calls it the highway of holiness. I don't know exactly how that's going to work. I don't know if they're going to come on buses, cars, donkeys, horses, camels, or just be walking. I do know this. Isaiah tells us that they're going to be feeble and weak and frail. And if you think about it, sometimes we've went through some rough things. I think many in Florida can say, yeah, some of the hurricanes sometime are a little rough to go through. And you feel like on the other end of it, you're exhausted. You feel like you've kind of been kind of cramped up and hunkered down for for days, even though it might only be hours. Um, I remember one year there were several hurricanes and we left on the first when we got back and I was just exhausted. It wasn't that big of a road trip, but just something about it. I was tired out. The next one came a couple weeks later and I said, we're just going to stay home and hunker down. And after that one, I was tired too. Can you imagine what they're going to feel like after being through the tribulation? All these pestilence and all these things, all these people that are seeking to kill them. It's going to be a big relief like the end of a war. And so they're going to be weak. They're going to be tired. Probably don't have much in the way of money. So I don't know that they could get a car or a bus or whatever to get there. But they're going to come back from all the countries where they're dispersed to the land of Israel, to the place where Messiah, their king, and now their savior is going to rule and reign. And that's what Isaiah is describing there. And I thought, you know, we didn't cover the real context of 34 and 35. So I felt like this morning we should kind of rewind a little bit and go back to that and put it in context of what we know from other passages. And then after Messiah comes back, he'll rule and reign for a thousand years and so that's kind of where we left off on 35 and 30, 34 and 35, and then we got into chapter 36. Before we move on, does anyone else have any questions? Can't guarantee I can answer them, but at least I hope we've kind of helped put it into a future context. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Carrie Ann's question was, why do some people think we're living in the millennium now? And I think it has to do with things compared to history seem to be in most or some people's eyes getting better and better. And I think all they're looking at is like technological advances, transportation. I mean, it used to be years ago to have food and be able to sustain oneself took all day to have the meals and everything ready so that you could eat. 
Today we have microwaves and things that we can just throw in a frozen dinner and in five minutes have a meal. And so there's a lot more leisure time, there's a lot more time that can be spent on other things. And so I think they think it's getting better and better. Now if you look at the human heart, it hasn't changed. Uh, and in fact, as we see our nation as a culture forsaking God, it's gotten worse and worse. There are problems today that didn't exist 50 years ago because there was more of a tie to the things of God. But I think when they're looking at that, they're looking at technology, they're looking at things are easier, they think things are getting better, and man thinks that he can bring peace. And they say peace, peace, but there is no peace. And so I think it's a delusion, but there are people that, like Terry Ann asked, they think we're living in the millennium. And if this is the millennium, then it's, it's going to be a, a rough thing going even further. Someone had their hand up. John? John brings up a very good point, and that is that we see really a very limited view. It's like blinders, because most of the world isn't enjoying what you and I enjoy in this country. Um, most of the world is in turmoil. There's people being killed because of what they believe. Uh, it's a very, very bad place, and so it's a delusion to think that we're in the millennium when you consider the whole world and not just our little sphere. Linda? If it happened right now, say tomorrow, uh, which I think it could, because if Korea, that nut over there, does what he's threatened to do a few things, like that bomb that goes way up into That's very true. Um, we don't know what God has in store for America. He doesn't reveal that in his word. He does mention China. He does mention Russia. And they are definitely going to be players in the end times. But I want us all to realize, whatever we see in politics today, it doesn't matter. Jesus is still King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he rules sovereignly in the affairs of all nations, including ours. And he isn't surprised by any of it. And so we don't have to wring our hands or get concerned about what we see around us. 
We just need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And as Isaiah put it in chapter 26, verse 3, he says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. And then he hits the key phrase, because he trusteth in thee. And the passage in Ezekiel 36 and 37 is a living example of Hezekiah trusting in God. Bob, you had something too. The note on the screen, the last one. Yes, sir. Tells why we're not in the thousand year reign yet. Because okay. it will be the reign of the Messiah. He will be there. Bob hit on a key thing. For it to be the millennium, you have to have the, the Messiah ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And so there's a lot to come. And with that, I'd like us to focus now on the fact that Messiah's second coming, I've covered these things that are on a slide. Those are the references that I just read where Isaiah was focused on that in chapter 34 and 35. What does God think of Hezekiah? I'll tell you what, let's turn in, in, um, in our Bibles to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. I don't see Brother Dalton this morning, but last week Brother Dalton mentioned this passage. I went back and, and reread it. Oh, he's hiding. Okay. Chuck was kind of giving him some cover there, yeah. <laughs> so, Brother Dalton. I just want to ask you a question. Okay. The honors in uh, 35 and 8 that the scriptures speak of, are the honors speaking about the redeeming? Okay. I, I, okay, let me read 35 and 8 and then you will get it from what I said. About what I said. 35 and 8. A highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. The others who have walked the road altogether, as though a fool shall not be go astray. So the others are talking about it. The redeeming. Yes, I, b I believe that whole passage is talking about the redeemed Jews coming back to Israel. And they'll have safety, and there'll be so many, they'll call this the highway of holiness. So I think it'll be a physical highway, just like we could go and find Old Dixie Highway here in Melbourne. Um, I think in Israel, they'll name that road the highway of holiness because all the Jews will be coming back on that. Okay. Moving on, though, to Hezekiah. Brother Dalton brought up the fact that 2 Kings 18 talks about this whole event. And I went back and looked at it and uh, kind of refreshed my memory. And I thought there were some interesting things that made it worth going back. And so we'll read verse 1, and then we'll skip down to a couple other verses. It says, Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, 
king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And so this is talking now about Hezekiah. And then in verse 3, if I can get it to come up. Verse 3, it says, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that, that David his father did. He removed the high places and broke the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brass and serpent that Moses had made. For unto these days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and they called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments for the, which the Lord commanded Moses. So I ask you again, what did God think of Hezekiah? Okay, he was one of the good kings. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. You can contrast this if you go to the book of Judges and read. It says that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Hezekiah did what was right before the Lord. What else do we know that the Lord said about Hezekiah? Okay, so he claved to the Lord, and that's why I think this phrase of he did right in the sight of the Lord. Anything else? Okay, God was with him. Of course, usually it's not God that moves away, it's us. You know, God's always there, right where he is supposed to be. Yes? He destroyed all the altars. Okay, he did a lot of things to destroy the pagan practices and pagan worship in the land. What else? He rebelled against the king of Assyria. Okay, he definitely did that. He rebelled against the king of Assyria. In fact, they paid tribute. In this, it mentions they paid tribute and then eventually... Um, they, they stopped because they didn't have any more to pay. Okay, there was none like him. In what way? Is following the Lord? Ah, there's that phrase. That phrase keeps coming up in Isaiah, and it comes up here in Second Kings chapter 18. He trusted in the Lord more than any other kings. It's kind of noteworthy. When you think about that for a minute. He trusted God more than any other of Judah's kings. That's a very significant statement. When you consider how many kings came before him and how many kings came after him, 
the key, I think, to his doing right in the sight of the Lord is he trusted the Lord. I think it brings up a question that we ought to consider. What does God think of us individually? Would he say that we trust him? And how much? It's put on display in living color in chapters 35, or 36 and 37. Last week, we covered the challenge. Here in 2 Kings, God's assessment of Hezekiah, if I were to sum up two things out of everything that was mentioned, and those things were right. Yeah, I just didn't put them on the slide, but these are the two that I think are the most significant. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and he trusted the Lord more than any of the other kings that were in Judah. And he's got some pretty stiff competition there. He's got David. King David was noted for his having a heart after God. Solomon. And then a bunch of others that aren't so big, but those two in particular are some pretty big shoes to, to say that he trusted God more than them. And so it begs the question as we go through this, Isaiah from at least chapter 7 to where we have stopped and then considered Hezekiah has been beating the drum. We need to trust God. We need to trust God. Don't trust man. Don't trust these other nations. I think the same thing is being said to you and I today. We need to trust God. We live in perilous times. We see some of that. And that's not our focus today. Our focus is trusting God. We need the same kind of trust in God that Hezekiah had. Notice what happened to Hezekiah. We covered this last week in chapter 36. This guy named Rabshakeh, who is a high official in Sennacherib's army or in his government, comes and he basically tells Hezekiah, Egypt can't help you. It'd be like someone going to Israel today and saying, America can't help you. And then he says, Jehovah is not going to help you because you destroyed his altars. Well, the truth of the matter is he destroyed the pagan altars. He didn't destroy anything concerning Jehovah, Yahweh. Okay. And you'll be treated well if you surrender. You just blend in with the world. You'll be fine. And other nations and other gods that have been conquered by Assyria. So what makes you think we aren't going to conquer you? Now the big mistake in Rabshakeh's challenge is Jehovah, the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, he's not like the other gods. The other gods can't see or hear. They're not living. They're man-made idols. Jehovah's not that way. He's the creator. And so coming into this, 
we have this challenge. And so we're going to pick up, if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 36, <coughs> excuse me, we'll start in verse 31. It says, but they held their feet peace. Talk about those that came from Hezekiah that heard Rabshakeh's arguments and challenge. It says, but they held their peace, answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Then came Elikim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Aspah, Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Elikim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe and the elders of the priest covered with sackcloth unto Isaiah the prophet the son of Amos and they said to him thus saith Hezekiah this is a day of trouble and of rebuke and of blasphemy for the children are come to birth and there's no no strength to bring forth it may be that the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshakeh whom the king of Assyria, his master, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. And Isaiah said unto them, Thus ye shall say unto your master, Thus saith the Lord God, Be not afraid of the words that thou hast heard, wherewith the servants of king of Assyria hath blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So what's Hezekiah's response to Rabshakeh's Challenge. He gets help from Isaiah. Okay. He seeks his counsel. So he gets help from Isaiah. I heard Nancy, and then Kurt, you had something. He, he turns to the Lord, basically. Okay. He turns it over to the Lord. Okay. Anything else? I was reading Isaiah chapter 30. 6 and 37, mainly 37, if I start in 36, verse 21. So, sorry about that. So the first thing I want you to know in verse 21 is, even before Rabshakeh gave his challenge, Hezekiah said, don't even bother to answer him. Just hear what he has to say. There's not really a good response that you can give to a challenge like that. It takes more than just words. The second thing I want you to notice is that they put on sackcloth. Back in Bible times, this was many times considered a sign of repentance. And so they're turning to God. Keep in mind they've been 
entertaining all of these different things, and we don't know if Hezekiah did or how much he did, but there was the idea that Egypt could save them. And so they're turning from that, turning to God, basically saying, you're our only hope. And they, when they went to Isaiah, they just presented the situation. They didn't make any demands. They just simply said, here's what has been done. Here's the challenge that has been issued. And the other thing that I think is probably the most significant is it mentions the fact that they recognized that the living God, the one true God, has been blasphemed and reproached here. What we think about God is what matters most. We may be in a dire situation, but the question that's more important is, what will people think about God based on how we are living, how we're reacting? I've seen funerals where those in attendance were acting like there was no hope. That shouldn't be. We as Christians should have more hope than any other people. And if we know our loved one knows Jesus as their Savior, we know we'll see him again. So we shouldn't act like we have no hope. When bad things happen, and they will, because this world, uh, when sin came in, sickness and health problems and death and dying and all those things that came, it was a package deal. But do we trust God when those things happen? Here, Hezekiah goes to Isaiah and he says, God's been reproached here. I thought it was kind of interesting. One commentary put it this way. He said, this is a life principle for a principle of life. The believer who lives a slipshod life, refusing to trust God in any deep way, will bring reproach upon God in the eyes of a watching world. The world's watching you and I, and it's saying, do you really trust God? If the answer is yes, then they're going to say, prove it. And it's going to take a different form for each one of us. For some, it may be through sickness. Through some, it may be financial things. Through others, it may be what job you should have, where you should go, where you should live. The question is, is do we really trust God and can the watching world around us tell that that is the most important thing to us, trusting God? I thought the commentary in 2 Kings was interesting because that was God's commentary about Hezekiah. He trusted God more than any other kings before and after him. It begs the question to you and I, do we trust God where he would say that about us? I don't know about you, but when I consider what the Bible says, it would be nice to see my Savior and hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
But I think second to that, to hear a commentary like Hezekiah got, that he trusted God more than those around him, more than those in his family, it's a challenge for each one of us. Do we really trust God? Does it show? Notice, though, God isn't unsympathetic. He has a response to Hezekiah. What does he tell him, first of all? First words that the prophet said, Thus saith the Lord. What's the first thing that he tells him? Don't be afraid. I think it's kind of interesting. The same thing, roughly, or very similar things, Isaiah told Ahaz in chapter 7, verse 4, was that he doesn't need to be afraid. In this case, don't be afraid of Assyria. In that case, don't be afraid of Ephraim and the alliance he has. What's going to happen to Assyria, the king of Assyria, rather? Okay. Ultimately, he's going to be assassinated. You know, what happens before that, though? Okay, here's a rumor and gets scared. So he comes to Jerusalem, right, to, to party? Okay. Basically, he's going to return to his own land, and then ultimately... He's going to be killed in his own land. He's not even going to enter into battle with Jerusalem. Let's pick up the story in verse 8. We'll read to verse 13. Because now all of a sudden a different scene comes before us. It says, so Rabshakeh returned. Found the king of Syria warring against Libna, where he'd heard that he was departing from Lachish, and he heard concerning Tarhaka, king of Ethiopia, he has come forth to make war with thee. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, Deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of king Assyria. Behold, thou hast heard what the kings of Assyria, what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands by destroying them utterly, and shalt thou be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed, as Goshen and Haran and Rezeph, and the children of Eden, which were in Telazar, where is the king of Hamath, and the king of Arphad, and the king of the city of Zepharvaim, Hina, and Iva? And Hezekiah received the letters from the hand of the messengers and read it. So what's the main attack of this letter? There's a letter here, or letters. Hezekiah has received. What's the main attack? Okay, let me start with Gary and I'll work my way forward. Go ahead, say that again, please. They were charging that our God is no greater than 
Okay, so the first thing, you, or one of the things you notice, I don't know if it's the first, is that he's basically saying, your God's just like all the others, and we, be, we defeated them. Wayne, did you have anything different? Uh, he was trying to intimidate him. Okay, he was trying to intimidate him, and that's definitely true. So they came, the Rabshakeh gave this big challenge, they kind of went away, and now they come back with these letters. Cindy, did you have anything different, or Terry Ann? He was trying to do what? I'm sorry, my hearing aid's not working. Okay, instill fear in him. Okay, thank you. So, how is he trying to instill this fear? Because Terry Ann's right. They're trying to make him afraid. Yes, ma'am. He's mocking them for trusting God. Okay, he's mocking them for trusting God. In fact, the way I put it is very similar to that. He's basically saying, don't let your God deceive you. And so that's that mocking tone there. Your God's just trying to deceive you. Don't let him do that. You can't win. Your God's not more powerful than the other gods. He's just one of many. And Assyria has conquered those. And so the two key points of the letter is don't let God deceive you. So it goes from an attack on Hezekiah and the people to an attack on Jehovah. You think that's a smart strategy? The God who can control the wind and the waves, the God that created this universe, and you're going to issue him a challenge? That he's no different than any other God? That he's not going to be strong enough to protect you from Assyria? That's so foolish. But this world, when you think about what we covered at the beginning of class, the armies of the world are going to come together against Israel. But then when Messiah comes on his horse, white horse, they're going to think they can win. They're going to think that their military might, their technology, can allow them to beat the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And all he's going to do is speak the word. And here's this guy, Rabshak, is sending a message saying he's deceiving you. He's no different than any other gods. What a foolish attack. Next week, we'll look at Hezekiah's response to it. I think we better close with a word of prayer. I hear the natives getting restless in the hallway. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending Jesus to save us from our sins. We thank you that you are worthy of our trust. And over and over again, you give us opportunities to trust you. Father, I pray you would instill a desire in our heart that we might trust you more. We pray for the service that follows, that the message that is brought would point us to Jesus and would exalt him highly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.